Please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We are continuing in our sermon series on the book of James, in a sermon series we've called Real Faith for Real Life. And the main central theme through this book is that saving faith, real saving faith in Christ will look a certain way in your life. And this week we turn to chapter 5, and although the first six verses are not printed in your bulletin, I want to speak to those just really quickly. James reserves his harshest words for those who are rich. And it's not that being rich is a problem in and of itself. It's that these rich people had a particular issue in that they felt like all the money that they had, they could spend on themselves. Either indulging in things or storing up wealth in the end times. And last week when Anthony touched on or when he spoke about materialism, it largely covered what's talked about here in terms of what the rich do. Their greed really takes control of their money. Their greed rules them. It goes as far as the rich would not even pay their workers for the work that they were doing. They had laborers out in their fields. These rich people were landowners. And the landowners had laborers that they failed to pay because their greed had really gotten so strong of a hold on their heart. And so that was the materialistic angle of the, those first six verses, but there's another angle to them. What about the laborers? These rich people were so powerful, they felt like they could do anything they wanted to, even not pay these workers their wages. And these were people who worked basically hand to mouth. And so if they didn't have money coming in, they didn't have a way to feed their families. And they were powerless against these, these powerful people to get what was really their due. And so what, what, what could they do? Well, they had to wait. And that leads us to our passage that we're going to cover in depth today, starting at verse 7, uh, where... James is talking about being patient. So if you would, read along with me. And you can find this also printed in your bulletin starting at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful." And that's where we're going to stop uh, today at verse 11. Please join me in prayer. Father, we pause for a moment and thank you 
for your word. And I admit, I can lose my patience in all sorts of ways. But I need patience. I need the patience and the power of your Holy Spirit to live well and to love others well. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us even as I pray this. That your Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts to convict and to comfort in the places in our hearts where we need it most. That your Holy Spirit would transform us into the image of your Son so that we can be patient as he has been patient toward us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Albert Einstein uh, once joked when he was being asked about his famous theory about how time can change. It can expand or contract based on his theory of relativity. And when he joked, he said this, When a man sits with a pretty girl for an hour, it seems like a minute. But let him sit on a hot stove for a minute, and it's longer than any hour. Now that's relativity. When life is going smoothly, it seems like time flies. However, when we go through pain and difficulty, time drags. And there's nothing that makes time drag on more than when we wait. None of us like to wait, but we are forced to wait on people and circumstances all the time. We're rushing to get to an appointment on time and we find ourselves behind this slow driver. Complaints and insults will form in our minds and in our mouths about people that we've never met before. We call customer service and we're forced to wait until the next representative is available to help you. And we get frustrated. We complain. We also wait on people in our family. We, when we watch our children repeatedly make mistakes or make decisions we wouldn't make for ourselves, we feel angry and helpless as we wait painfully for a time that they're going to grow up and become more responsible. And for some of us, we wait on the edge of hope or despair. Last week I received a call from a dear lady from my last church and she told me that her husband was not feeling well so he went to the doctor and from preliminary tests they found out that he had this some form of leukemia they just didn't know what type and the doctor told him or the doctor told them rather that he could have a type that's acute that could end his life very very quickly he could also have a type that's more chronic and with the right treatment, he could live for a number of years. They don't know which, and it will take a couple of weeks for the test results to come back. So they wait. Lewis Smedes put it this way, Waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. As James says in verse 7, Jesus promises to return to fix our broken relationships, to fix our broken bodies, to fix our broken souls, and to fix our broken world. 
And as we wait on his not yet, we are tempted to feel like it's a not ever. And to this, James tells us in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So in all the disappointments, delays, and interruptions that tax us, God is working behind the scenes to make us into more patient people. And he makes us more patient in three ways. He makes us patient by directing us to our work. He makes us patient by showing showing us his patience toward us. And third, he makes us patient by leading us into the crucible. Okay, let's jump into the first point. He makes us patient by directing us to our work. Now, usually when we think about being patient, we think of it as being passive, don't we? You know, we think of it as not really doing anything, but the word that is being used here in verse 7 is very much active, okay? Being patient takes work. Now, it's more accurate to render this English as we are exercising patience instead of merely being, being patient. Now, we learn three things about the work of patience here in this passage. The first thing that we learn about the work of patience is it's like farming. Right, the verse 7 says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So he's using the illustration of a farmer because as we know, crops, they don't magically show up out of the ground by themselves. You know, it takes work. You know, you have to work to plow the ground to soften it up. You have to work to plant the seeds. You have to work in order to harvest. Sometimes you have to work in order to tend and to prune. So a farmer's work, it's not passive because he has responsibilities within the realm of his control that he has to do in order for his crops to grow. However, there are some essential components to growing crops that are outside of his control. He can't, as James put it, puts it, he can't control the early and the late rains. He can't control the locusts. He can't control these devastating form, storms. And so by James using this illustration of the farmer, he is teaching us to be clear on what our realm of responsibility is and what it's not. When we get confused about the limits of our responsibility it wreaks all kinds of problems in our lives. You know, take parenting, for example. As parents, it is our responsibility and within our realm of control to love our children, to set expectations, to discipline when needed, to teach them a biblical worldview, to pray for them, among other things. But when we become overly anxious as parents, we... Yeah, become overly anxious about their future, about their happiness, about their safety, we can cross the line and instead of being wise, caring parents, we can become foolish helicopter parents, okay? Like, for example, parents who stand over their child's so, uh, shoulders while they're doing the homework or making sure they're aware of every single assignment that the kid has to, to turn in. Or not allowing their children to make age-appropriate choices so that they can gain wisdom and learn from their mistakes. And in recent years, I've, I've heard another term 
for an over-involved parents called lawnmower parents. These are parents that not only hover over their children, but mow down any obstacle in their child's path, okay? So this would be the parent that cleans up their children's rooms for them, that does their chores for them, intervening in every decision to make sure they insulate them from the consequences of their mistakes, intervening when they have a conflict with a friend. You know, all at its core, all this type of parenting is a failure to believe that God is ultimately responsible for their growth and maturity, that God is ultimately responsible for their care. And it does a couple of pretty bad things. It, first, it, it creates division in the household. It creates stress in the parent's life. The kids, they don't want to be around a controlling parent like that. But it also fails to prepare our children for the real world and making decisions for themselves. And parenting is just one realm of, of, of where we need to really be clear on where our responsibility lies. We have to be clear on what we are responsible for and what we have to trust God to take care of outside of our control. Well, the second work of patience is to watch what you say to other people. Verse 9 says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. So when we're forced to wait, especially on someone else, we are tempted to grumble at them. And what is grumbling? It's a complaining, it's a sarcasm, it's nagging. Often it's an attempt to manipulate or control others using our negative words to motivate them to do what we want them to do. Grumbling is the words that we say when we demand our best life now. We've all done this. You know, our spouse doesn't do something the way we would do or how fast we would do it. And we grumble at them until they do it our way. You know, instead of trusting the Holy Spirit to grow them we ch- and, and grow them into God's image, we try to remake them into our image. And it's so easy for us to minimize the sin of grumbling, isn't it? It's so easy for us to consider it a minor thing. And I'll tell you, if left unchecked, what happens is that our lives become characterized by this base note of complaint, base note of sarcasm. And I'll tell you what, God does not consider this a minor thing. In verse 8, he says, do not grumble so that you may not be judged. God considers it a big enough problem that he will judge us by every single word that we say. All of us. And he considers it a big problem, grumbling a big problem for two reasons. First, grumbling tears at the fabric of family and community. You know, no one cares to be around Eeyore. If you're a complainer in your family, eventually they won't want to be around you. They'll find other things to do. If you are a complainer and a grumbler outside your family, you'll start to wonder why you can't make connections, why you can't retain friends, and why you don't receive invitations to dinner at people's homes. Well, the second reason why God considers it a problem is because he can perceive a greater heart issue underneath the grumbles. 
Okay, in Numbers 11, the Israelites did not like the manna in the desert. They wanted more variety of food, of cucumbers and melons and things like that. And they started grumbling toward Moses and Aaron. And God judged them for grumbling because he perceived underneath their grumbling was an act of rebellion against him. They didn't trust in God's care. They didn't trust in God's sovereign plan for their lives. And that's something that we can so easily do. As one put it, it is quite possible for you to sing the song on Sunday morning, whate'er my God ordains is right, and give your heart and your mouth to grumbling before you're back home after the service. It's very easy for us to sing, great is thy faithfulness, and yet days later grumble against the way God brings that faithfulness into our lives with the circumstances he brings our way. We have to avoid grumbling. We have to. But it's not just a behavior modification that James is talking about here. You got to address the deeper stuff, which is the third work that we have to do. The third work that God directs us to do is establish our hearts. If we have a problem with taking on more responsibility, then is within our realm of control. If we grumble against other people, we are called not to merely change our behavior and just hold those feelings inside. We have to look at the heart issue. We have to look at the heart issue compelling us to be helicopter parents. We have to, we have to address the heart issue compelling us to complain and to grumble against other people. As Calvin says, our hearts are idle factories. Our hearts attach themselves to good things and make them ultimate things in our lives. So the helicopter parent has made their kid's future an ultimate priority instead of trusting God. And you have to address it at the, at the root level, at the heart. The grumbling spouse has made his comfort or schedule more important than God's commands to be kind. So we have to examine what's going wrong in our hearts when this stuff comes out of our mouths. And that's the first point. So in summary, God makes us patient by directing us to our work, to be responsible to do what we must and then trust in Him for the rest, to refuse to grumble and to examine our hearts from where it all comes from. But God also makes us patient by secondly, showing us his patience to us. Now verse 11 says, you have seen how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now the key to becoming patient toward people is understanding how God is patient toward us, how merciful and compassionate he is toward us. And as an example, James lists the prophets. The Old Testament prophets were God's representatives to remind God's people of their covenant commitment to God and to also remind them that they will be judged if they turn away from God. And the prophets were great examples of God's patient mercy for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that prophets demonstrated his patient love toward people who would not love them back. When Jeremiah proclaimed God's message to their people, they refused to listen. They even labeled Jeremiah as a traitor and tried to hunt him down to kill him because they wanted to wipe out his message. The same happened with Elijah. Elijah spoke God's word to his people and the king and queen. They tried to hunt him down and kill him too. 
Yet they both continued to love their people by proclaiming God's message, even in the face of the anger, even in the face of the hardship and the hurt that was returned back to them. So let me ask you, have you ever tried to love someone who would not love you back? Have you made multiple attempts to show kindness and they don't appreciate you? As a matter of fact, they may take advantage of you. They may even return hurt for your kindness. Well, if you've done that before, then you know what it's like to be those prophets. But the second thing that the prophets teach us is that they knew the patience that they had been given. Hosea the prophet was asked to take a harlot wife and to have children with her. And then Hosea's wife committed adultery with another man. And then God does this crazy thing. He commands Hosea to take her back. Even though she, she runs off to other men, take her back and not divorce her. And he says in Hosea 3.1, Go again, love the adulteress who is loved by another man, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. In other words, God said to Hosea, The patience that you're demonstrating toward this unfaithful wife, it may be difficult, but not as difficult as the patience I've demonstrated toward you and my people for thousands of years. What James is teaching us here is that the key to becoming a patient and merciful person toward others is understanding the patience and the mercy that has been poured out on you. Or let me put it another way. Some of you in here have shown tremendous patience towards some friends, towards some family members, your spouse, your children. And as hard as this next thing is to say, we all have to hear this. You will never show more patience toward anyone else than God has shown toward you. Not even close. Someone recently shared the story of seeing a, a boy rescue a, a cat from a river. And as the boy was pulling this cat out of the water, the cat was just clawing and scratching and blooding this, this poor kid's little hand. And that right there is a picture of how we have responded to God's pursuit of us. That is a picture of how we bite and we've bitten and we've scratched and we try to flee God's efforts to love us not only when we're coming to Christ, but even sometimes after we've come to Christ, this is us. And if you, you know, as one put it, if you lose sight of that fact, you lose the engine that gives you the ability to be patient toward others when they lash out toward you. Do you want to be a patient person? Go through your life and remember all the times that God never stopped pursuing you even when you clawed, even when you scratched, even when you rebelled against him. Do you want to be a merciful person? Remember all the times that God gave you mercy when you deserve nothing but judgment from turning from him. Because remember, you will never show more patience toward anyone else than he has shown toward you. So 
Let's summarize where we are. God makes us patient by showing us our work. He makes us patient by showing his patience toward us. But thirdly, he makes us patient by leading us into the crucible. Now, a crucible is a ceramic, often, oftentimes a ceramic or metal container where you put metal and other substances and put high pressure and temperature to forge something new. And verse 11 refers to the crucible that Job uh, endured. It says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, Job was a man who was led into the crucible by God to suffer. And the short summary was that, that Job, through a, a tragic series of losses, he lost his business, he lost all of his children, he had 10 of them, he lost them all. He lost his health and he lost the respect of his wife. And as he is suffering all this, he has friends that come to him and crowd around to comfort him. And they actually, for the first seven days, do a pretty good job. They sit there and weep by him, not saying one word. But then they open their mouths. And they start giving him bad advice. They tell Job that the reason why he's suffering more than anybody else they know is because he's probably more sinful than anybody else they know. And so he's not only, the, he's not only suffering from the losses that he's incurred, but he's also suffering from these accusations and from these, these, this advice that he's getting from his friends. And so James, he remarks on the steadfastness of Job. But as you read that, and if you've ever read the book of Job, you might be feeling a little tension. Because yes, he was steadfast in, in the way that he never, he never forsook his, his Lord. He never turned away from God. But on the other side of that, he waited in a very messy way. He complained. He cursed the day that he was born. He questioned God. He questioned that God is treating him justly. He demanded answers from God. And, and sometimes he appears to be just very self-righteous. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure if I was given those same circumstances, I would not have done as well as he would. And very few of us would. But that's precisely the point. The point of Job is not us meeting some standard of righteous suffering to earn God's blessing, but rather the point is that God has a purpose for our suffering. In verse 11, James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. God placed Job in the crucible of suffering for a purpose. And while there's no way that we can understand every single purpose that God has for us when he puts us in the crucible, he does make one purpose very clear at the end of his book in Job chapter 42. You heard it read to you earlier by Kevin, but I'm going to read it to you again so that we can listen carefully for what is there for us. Verse 1 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Job remembers something that God said to him. The Lord said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job said, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he remembers something else the Lord said. 
Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And then this is what Job concludes. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Did you catch that? Did you catch what happened there? There was a change. There was a profound change in Job. If I was to paraphrase what he said, it would go something like this. You know, when I opened my mouth, I showed my ignorance before you, God. Your purposes are so far ahead, uh, above my head, I do not understand you. But now that I have had a real encounter with you in my suffering, I repent. I am changed. You see, God not only led Job into the crucible, he met him into in the crucible to forge Job into a different man, to refine his character. You know, when we wait in our suffering, we have to remember the purpose of the Lord. His mercy never stops, but he may be giving a mercy of refinement instead of a mercy of relief. As one put it, we long for the mercy of relief in our suffering. And that's not a bad thing because every time that you long for that, you're actually longing for eternity. And there are moments that he will give us relief in this life. But get this, when we are waiting, when we're waiting, friends, what you actually need is the mercy of refinement in this moment. Relief will come when refinement has done its work. I recently read an account of one of the highest profile worship leaders in the largest evangelical church in the early 2000s. Dieter Zander led worship where tens of thousands of people gathered every Sunday. He led worship with such energy that it's reported that the building building shook from the congregation just singing and having so much energy in the worship. And he was so well-respected, churches would fly Dieter across the country to teach seminars on how to lead worship. Well, one night when Dieter was in his late 40s, he began to violently shake. He suffered a massive stroke in the left hemisphere of his brain and went into a coma. And when he awoke from the coma six days later, he was no longer able to communicate as he had before. He had to learn how to speak his wife's name, how to speak his children's names. He could no longer use his right hand, which meant he couldn't play the piano anymore. He couldn't lead worship anymore. Before, he used to work on a stage before thousands of people who applauded his every move. But now, he works in a a windowless room in the back of a Trader Joe's grocery store his job is breaking down boxes and also when a fruit is bruised if if pears fall into the floor if apples fall on the floor and get bruised when the product is no longer regarded as perfect it's brought to Dieter and from him it goes to feed the homeless and the hungry those people who don't care if the apple is lopsided and after his stroke Dieter wrote a book about his experience and said Inside, I am the same person. The same sense of humor is in there. The same 
thoughts, the same music, but my words betray me. What should take three minutes to say is now an hour of frustration. People just lose patience with me. And one by one, my friends have just left me. And it's been harder for me to make new connections. My condition is loneliness. It's isolation. It is a wall that seals you off from the rest of the world and solitary confinement inside your own head. Dieter is in the process of waiting. He's not waiting for a doctor or some treatment that's going to reverse his condition because his ailment is beyond the skill that we possess here on earth to heal. He waits for Jesus. He waits for the, G, for the relief that Jesus is going to bring to him. But in his waiting, Dieter had more to say in the book that he wrote. He wrote, in my aloneness, I discovered God. I thought I knew him, but after the stroke, locked in the prison of my own mind, I found that I had never really known God at all. Not like this. All those thoughts those fears, those jokes I couldn't bring to life outside my head, God heard them. I felt his comfort, his peace, and even his laughter. You know, now my time with him is more precious, the time that I share with him in the morning. It reminds me of the scripture that says that streams of living water will flow from within those who believe. God pours his love into me, a flawed and broken vessel. And I'm learning to let that love flow out through me to others. And you know, when I closed the book and looked on the cover, I could not help but to be moved by what he entitled this book. He called it Stroke of Grace. Somehow, after all that pain, he saw his suffering as grace because it drew him closer to his Lord. Can you relate to that? Do you suffer in a way that can only be relieved when Jesus comes back? Maybe there's a chronic condition that you suffer and the doctors have said, there's no more that we can do. Maybe there's a dysfunctional relationship and you have poured yourself into it time and time again. And no matter how kind you are, no matter how much you initiate to them, it just doesn't seem to get better. Maybe you grieved, you grieve right now from the death of a dear loved one and you miss them every day when you see that empty place at the table or when you're sleeping on the side of the bed or trying to sleep in the middle because you don't want to be reminded of missing them. And you'll only meet them again in heaven. You long for the grace of relief. That's okay to want that grace God will eventually grant us that grace. But in the meantime, he brings a grace of refinement for us. To remind you that you are not alone in the crucible. He meets you in the crucible and meets you with his grace to refine you. Through your pain, he is making you more aware of him. He's more, making you more aware of his presence, of his love. 
He is refining you into a person that will be patient and loving toward others as he has been toward you. And when his grace of refinement is finished, he will give us all the grace of relief. And friends, that's what this table is all about. This table is a meal that points to a banquet that Jesus is preparing for us. One day, we will sit in his presence at a table with perfect bodies. We will sit at a table with people we have perfect relationships with in a perfect world. But not yet. Not yet. And that's why this table also points to the grace that we receive right now. Because Jesus is present in these elements. It's a mystery. I can't fully explain it to you. But he is present right here. And when we take these elements, the bread and the wine, and we take them in by faith, he strengthens us in the crucible. This table, however, is not for everybody. If you are a member in good standing at any evangelical church, this is your table. You're part of the family. But if that's not you, if you have not made a commitment to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you're still wondering if Jesus is who he said he really is, then We are so glad that you're here. We invite you to come and ask questions. And we invite you to continue to to be a blessing among us. But don't be embarrassed to to not participate in 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 this sacrament. And so with that, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for these elements that remind us of the grace that you give us now and the grace that you're preparing for us later. And so, Father, as we do this together, may we do it in faith and strengthen us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.